My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we are talking about Mikio Naruse. And if you think that Justin's voice is just a little lower, a little more mellow than it usually is, doesn't have that kind of bombast that he's become known and beloved for. It's because we're talking about Japanese cinema, and I want to be more serious than we usually are. It's because this poor boy is getting over a debilitating illness. Yes, that's why. <laughs> he's trying not to destroy his throat. So, looks like it's going to be on me to provide the laughs, the energy that... <laughs> The enthusiasm. <laughs> oh no, he's making me come already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's he, like I'm in a Japanese melodrama, and before I had my time, I'm like coughing up blood, being like, oh, it's almost over, Will. We got Ikiro right across from me right oh, here. Oh, God, I hope not. So, Mikio Neruse, this is the first of four Japanese filmmakers we'll be doing in the next four episodes. What I kept reading this week, of course, is that there are three great mid-century Japanese auteurs who get all the attention. Kurosawa, Mizuguchi, and Ozu. And then there's Neruse, who's just a little bit overlooked. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that he was incredibly prolific. And because of that, there is a kind of, well, where do I start? Which is the best one? Uh, let's watch an Ozu instead. And a lot of them kind of look similar. Yes, you know, because he... he made dramas about middle-class people dealing with issues. There's also the fact that a lot of his films are kind of fatalistic and nihilistic. That's what people keep saying about him, that mm -hmm. he's fatalistic, nihilistic. You see those words come up over and over again. And... It's funny, like they are downbeat, they are tragic. A word like nihilistic carries so much negative energy to it. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think these movies, uh, these movies moved me very deeply. And mm -hmm. I, I think anything that does that is, is, is not nihilistic because that would leave more of a bitter taste in your mouth. I, I think so, because nihilism implies that there's no hope. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like. Well, these movies oftentimes, and we'll discuss the plots of them, they are these kind of little pockets in the long lives of these characters where a moment of hope is presented, and then they cannot take that opportunity for multiple reasons, and they have to go on basically on the path that they already were. Well, they made, made 89 movies, and I've seen five of them in my life now, so don't assume I'm any sort of expert on mm -hmm. this, but the movies I've seen are all... Uh, very much about how life is difficult, you know, and to some degree, it's the systems and structures and values that our society or Japanese society in this case has erected that make life very hard. You know, we see the characters in these movies running up against the constraints of what society expects a woman should be or a husband should be or a family should be. But then the people also run up against their own heads and hearts, you know, we see the people in these movies having feelings that are often very difficult and inconvenient. Uh, and they're complicated feelings as well. Is that, you know, oftentimes in kind of middle class dramas, there may be the feeling of, well, why don't you just do this one thing? And if you did this one thing, that would solve the problems of this. And kind of like Douglas Sirkian, it, it's so complicated that you can understand why they end up where they do at the end of these stories. As a great man once said, the heart wants what it wants. So these movies tell very direct and elegant stories of how hard it is to be in the world. And I don't know, um, I, I guess it is, they, they, they tend to end quite tragically. They, they show how these, you know, these systems and these feelings like create these walls around us that are hard to, to get over. I mean, like a lot of uh, those Japanese directors that we mentioned earlier, he's also operating in this mid-20th century post-war context for the most part mm -hmm. where, you know, there's this infiltration of uh, Western values and aesthetics. 
globalized modernity is being imposed on these cultures, even though that he doesn't believe necessarily that those cultures are better, but they're just different and they're also destroying what is there. Ozu deals in this stuff a lot too, and I wouldn't call either him or Neruse reactionary. Like they're not they're not saying like get off my lawn about this stuff. Because also in like the Neruse films, you know, a lot of these traditional structures that are binding the characters in lead to their ruin, you mm-hmm. know, especially in A Woman Ascends the Stairs. It, it, it's complicated. I, You know, there's still, though, yeah, like there's, there's, there's sadness about these structures and there's also sadness about the passing of time. time and traditions and all this. And I think all of this makes it more complicated than just bleak and nihilistic because like if it was nihilistic things wouldn't change but is it nihilistic in the sense that there is the offer of change and then there's no escape from that time moves quickly but also moves very slowly doesn't it yeah and also in life there's very rarely change that is something that people can act on consciously oftentimes it is forced upon them and that's not really what these movies are about Uh, these movies are also you know very beautiful they're not ostentatious he's not showy like kurosawa is or you know, Ozu is slow-paced, but Ozu almost, like, created his own film language. Well, he's very, you know, set in his formalistic ways. An early studio that uh, Naruse worked for said, like, we already have an Ozu. It's like, you have to go find your own style, buddy. Yeah, and I, I would say that the Naruse movies, based on my <laughs> based on my limited experience with them, um, they, they're more conventional melodramas mm. than, say, the Ozu movies are. I love I love to just, by the way... Like, a, blo- a broad blanket yeah. on like this almost 100-film career. <laughs> and, and also just like boiling down a national cinema into like three directors and being <laughs> yeah. like, well, he's a bit like this one, but a little bit like this one. But anytime you see a mention, that's exactly how they discuss him. Yeah. We're only coming from him from a Western perspective of what was released. What's interesting is that like Naruse... One of his films is claimed to be the first one that was released internationally for uh, American audiences, like Japanese films coming to America to be released. And that was an early sound film that he made, Wife Be Like a Rose. And I couldn't find that many like articles about it, but it was supposedly not even well-reviewed by American press upon its release. Yeah, so this is one that we both watched for this episode. Uh, I'd never heard of it, to be honest, and I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was just... Uh, what a great movie, yeah, isn't it? Like... My, my God. Uh, so the main character is this white-collar girl in Tokyo. She's young. She's looking to get married to her fiancé. She's working as well, which is very important. You mentioned white-collar, but she is, like, the breadwinner for the house. Mm -hmm. And she lives with her mother, who's a poet and an intellectual, and her father... Uh, has abandoned the family, basically. He's gone into the countryside somewhere, and they don't... I mean, she knows... She sort of knows where he is, but hasn't... Uh, he, he's much estranged. She saw him on the street once recently, but wasn't able to find him. And she needs him as a mediator for this marriage. She needs him to approve it. So she goes to the countryside, finds that he has a whole new family. He has a whole new... I don't know if she's a wife exactly, but uh, maybe she's the mistress. But um, she, whatever she is... She she has grown dependent on him, and he's got uh, new kids over there, too. So uh, much of the drama of the film, or the moral dilemma of the film, comes from the fact that, look, it's a terrible thing to abandon your family, but also he was very unhappy there, and he has this new family that depends on him. And so what is the moral thing to do? What is the moral thing for him to do, and what's the moral thing for her to expect of him? But you also get this last 15 minutes of the film where he comes back home to do an act with his, the wife that he abandoned 
And basically that wife realizes this is not the man that I've created in my mind. The one that abandoned this big romantic figure. No, he's just a human being who doesn't necessarily like the things that I like or reacts the way I want him to react. And there's also a sadness there that like this person that was gone is now back. And this thing I was yearning for never really existed in the first place. Yeah, devastating. And I mean, the young girl also has to reckon with the fact that, well, Maybe my father being here actually isn't, maybe it would be a bit better for me, but it would certainly be not as good for a lot of other people Mm -hmm. and having to make the sort of, having to have the maturity to accept that. Um, And obviously, again, abandoning your family is probably a not very nice thing to do, but emotions are complicated. And we should stress again, this is a beautiful looking movie, like the little camera moves, the way that it's edited. I mean, as a director, he's a master of the form of using all of these things together to hit that emotional point without having to underline it. And that's just beautiful in its own right. His most famous movie is probably A Woman Ascends the Stairs from 1960. We're fast forwarding very far into the future Mm -hmm. here, well after the Second World War. And in this one... Uh, There are three kinds of bar hostesses in downtown Tokyo. There are the ones who take a cab home. There are the ones who take the tram home. And then there are the ones who go home with the customers. And existing perhaps somewhere between the first two categories is Keiko, who's played brilliantly by Naruse's long returning, you know, I think he made 30 films with her or something, leading actress Hideko Takamine. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, I should say that Naruse is also, as a director, someone that everybody said was unknowable, that even the people who worked with him for like 30 movies said he never really gave any direction and we never knew him as a person, that he kind of like would ride the bus to work like silently, thinking about what he was going to do next, as opposed to like interacting or being a big personality. Now, this character of Keiko... She's a widow, and she works as a hostess. She doesn't sleep with the customers. Uh, she uh, she she very consciously has not sought out that sort of relationship, sort of out of respect for her dead husband. Oh man, all all the movies that we watch is often having respect for like either a loser man or a dead man. Yes, but but she also has like clientele. She has like men who who visit her. And she's she's 30. So she's getting at this age of like do you marry again? Probably not. Do you become a spinster? You're not going to be a bar hostess forever. Like pretty much do you own a bar? Do you own a bar? That can be something you do or do you, you know, do you start to do other sorts of things for money? You mm-hmm. know, do you do you maybe become one of those bar hostesses who goes home with the customers? And uh this is the big dilemma. And she spends much of the movie seeking to create a new bar for herself, to become an entrepreneur like the most successful hostesses do. And the film is a succession of her trying to work with these various men who, you know... Are shit. Who are shit, yes. This is a common theme through the filmography of this filmmaker, is that the men are losers, they're liars, or they're just broken in a way that the women, who are often the central characters, are trying to not fix, but figure a way to survive and by doing that oftentimes drag themselves under as well yes and so so much depends on the women Mm -hmm. you know the women whether in a domestic situation or in this case as a bar hostess like she they they absorb so much from all these characters and and they're often like you know the the pillar that holds you know the families or the communities together and and what what thanks do they get now uh they usually get lied to and what little hope they have is just torn away from them in the final moments of the picture yeah i mean this is probably a superficial thing to say but hideko takamine 
the the very understated performance she gives here in great contrast with the performance she gives in Hit and Run in 1964. Well, the thing about her character in this movie is that she is playing multiple roles as the film goes on, right? That she has to be in front of people that she works with. She has to be a certain way. In front of the customers, she has to be a certain way. And then you also get to see her behind the scenes where you hear voiceover narration, which is then defining her in the way she sees herself. And all of those different pieces need to work, need to feel distinct from each other, but also have a connective thing that you're like, oh, I understand where they all come from. Yeah, and there's so much happening, you know, on the surface of her performance and also internal internalized mm-hmm. in her performance it's a really heartbreaking piece of acting especially you know that last shot again you know, devastating well, I mean, spoiler in the title <laughs> yeah a woman ascends the stairs it's true before we get to the further films just a little bit of biographical information about Nerusse, who i realized that we haven't talked a lot about his story he was in filmmaking pretty much for his entire life uh he was born in tokyo in 1905 but then joined the famous shochiku film studio like when he was 15 Mm -hmm. and he was working, you know, as a crew assistant, he was working in the lights. Eventually he was taken under the wing of this very prolific and popular comedy director worked for him a lot. I don't have that guy's name in front of me right now, but it wasn't, you know, he spent a decade just doing odd jobs and lighting at Shochiku until 1930 when he was finally allowed to direct a film of his own. I guess he would have been only 25 at that point. And it was a comedy. It was called uh, Mr. and Mrs. Swordplay. It was a short. It does not exist anymore, but it was apparently enough of a success that he was then allowed to direct a romance called Pure Love, uh, which is also lost. He made many lost films um, in the early parts of his career. All the films he made at Shochiku are lost now, and eventually he became frustrated with working there, and it was in 1934 that he moved to Toho. I'm sure that studio will be familiar to listeners. Kurosawa and Godzilla both worked there. Never did anything else other than those two. <laughs> and Wife Be Like a Rose, which he made in 1935, was his breakthrough film. It was an enormous domestic success, and as you said before, an international success. And from there, he basically became a Toho mainstay, just kind of churning them out, probably doing them at a certain budget level. Never really broke genre very often. I will say that something really interesting about his films after a particular period of time is that he would shoot in Toho scope, a.k.a. kind of um, anamorphic or cinemascope in black and white which you very rarely see, because once you move to CinemaScope, you usually move to color. But I love CinemaScope, black and white film, especially when they're domestic dramas, where they're capturing a different kind of angle than you would expect on, you know, things that are claustrophobic. And, I mean, sorry, I I hate to keep bringing back the same few directors over and over again, but yeah, Ozu created his own language, his own style of composition. I wouldn't say Neruse did that, but every shot is remarkably composed, you know, Uh, remarkably beautiful in a way that's not really obtrusive. And so moving on, let's jump another four years, basically when the director was almost done, a.k.a. passed away, which is the only way that he would stop making movies. I know that we both watch Yearning from 1964. Another beautiful film. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, the thing about talking about him is I, I do think like a lot of what's great about him is right there. But it is a tough sell, I think, to people when you talk about like, oh, yeah, they're domestic dramas about like sadness and time passing by. And you're like, can I watch a Kurosawa movie? Like they're a little bit more like out there and in your face. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the way I would sell them is just you will be very moved and you will think about your own life. Well, uh, they're very Douglas Sirkian, yeah. I feel, without 
without I mean, the Douglas camp. Sir- yeah, the camp and like the mm-hmm. you know the colors and the the bigness of Douglas Sirk. So this film is about a war widow. The main character is named Reiko, pl- played again by Hideko Takamine. Again, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. She was married to her husband for six months before he died in the war, and it's been 18 years since. And in those 18 years, she has held on to his memory. She has considered herself still married to her late husband, and in fact, out of love and devotion to her late husband, has cared for his family and has continued the grocery store, the small grocery store that he ran. But now, one of the sisters of her dead husband wants her to get out of the house, that she's tired of her, she needs to move on with her life. And further, there are huge changes in the grocery store business. That's right, that uh, supermarkets are coming into play. Kicking out the family-owned single-unit ones. So the family is trying to figure out a way to get her out. You know, they they want to they want to potentially create a supermarket. Is she going to be involved in it? Uh, is she qualified to be involved in it? Also, there's her brother-in-law, played by uh, Yuzo Kayama, who is nine years old when she married uh, her her late husband. You know, she was she was much younger than he was, and she's cared for him ever since. And now that he's in his early twenties. He has begun to develop feelings for her. Uh, you could call them quasi incestuous feelings, mm, especially because uh, she knew him that young, right? Uh, but he is a young uh, ruffian and roustabout. He's always uh, drinking and gambling and uh, finding uh, loose women down at the pachinko parlor, playing those little balls that I look at and go, "How do you play this game?" I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he's in love with her and. So she realizes not only is she being, you know, forced out of uh, or, or encouraged to leave this grocery store business, but she's also uh, has to uh, beat off the advances, the affections of, you know, basically someone she raised. And so she eventually makes a decision that she's going to go to the country and leave everyone behind and uh, with, with allegedly a new beau, who, of course, is the old beau. It's her old husband. But mm-hmm. she says she has someone else because... In Japan at this time, at least in the circle she's traveling in, you either have a husband or you don't, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, she wouldn't leave if she didn't have a husband. That's right. she, like, an independent person or something? Exactly. And then uh, the emotional climax that this movie builds to is really amazing, especially the way that it gets there. You know, she's on the train. Her brother-in-law sees through her immediately, realizes what's going on. You don't have, you don't have a new beau. So he follows her onto the train, and they share this train ride that is just just amazing. And I'm not going to be able to do justice to it. Maybe with there's words. a little bit of yearning in it. <laughs> yeah, but you're just kind of on this train with them for a while, and you know you see things pass by, you hear their conversation, you see the sunset, and you're kind of just living in these very complicated feelings: the the sadness of leaving things behind, the inevitability of time passing, the complexity of. Uh, inconvenient feelings and uh probably shouldn't spoil it anymore from there should we no i think that people can pretty much guess where it's going but you know let's leave it in the air we want people to discover these movies but as you can tell just from that plot synopsis it's like all the other films that we talked about very complicated dealing with a woman's feelings in a society that doesn't know what to do with her that she did everything right for 18 years and now she's expected to just go on, just do her own thing. Now, the last movie that we watched for this was one that you found that I also had never heard of before, and I don't think it's really considered one of the most famous ones. No. But it's it's interesting, and it's quite different than the other ones that we talked about. Well, it's similar in some ways, but it's different 
stylistically, I think. It's called Hit and Run, also known as Moment of Terror from 1964. And what's interesting about this one is that it's basically Naruse making a revenge film where a woman's son is hit by a car, dies. And she finds out who did it, which was a woman having an affair who was driving a car and didn't want to stop. And having an affair with a very wealthy man. Mm -hmm. And when she learns this, she decides, I will take revenge on this woman by integrating myself in her household and killing her son, who was the same age as my son when he died. And by the way, this woman is played again by Hideko Takamine, who gives a, a, a much different performance than what she gave in those other films. Much more like hysterical, hysterical and forceful, which, you know, after the other movies, I think is quite fun to see. I, I also find this movie, I mean, stylistically, it's much more ostentatious than the others. There's a lot more like suspense and obvious drama and obvious melodrama. But I mean, the emotions in it, too, are very difficult and complicated. Thematically, I think it continues with his work in the sense that it's like women having to make choices in their lives of where they take these very difficult things, where do they go? And I mean, out of all the films that we talked about, this is the one that has the darkest of all endings. <laughs> like when it happened, I was genuinely shocked. It's a weird one to talk about because it was one of the last films that he made and it felt like him trying to do something different than he usually does. Because like around this period in the mid sixties is like there was a rise of crime films coming out of Japanese cinema. It almost seems trying to put himself in that mold while still using his actors and his techniques. And I don't know if it's a perfect fit, but it's an interesting fit to see him tackle the material in his way his extraordinary productivity began to ebb in the 1960s in 1969 he died of cancer at the age of only 63 i mean the man still was able to pump out 90 89 films 89 or 90 i've seen both numbers cited i think it's a little hard when some of them are lost to get an exact tally i do think it demands more study why he isn't talked about more in the sense that i knew i knew his names i'd never seen any of his films uh, yeah i'd seen one of them before just by mm. randomly once before but yeah i had never i never quite got got to him mm. and um i feel ashamed about that because i don't know if, if you were to ask me why i never watched one i think it's just because big intimidating filmography and uh mm. yeah they're they're like what are they well it's not it's like i know what throne of blood is yes <laughs> A guy gets hit by arrows at the end. Yeah. Like, That's fun, right? Yeah. So if folks don't know how to tackle him, uh, I would honestly just say, like, go straight into the most famous ones. Watch Yearning. A Woman Ascends the Stairs. They're all on the Criterion channel, too. Yeah. And I, I'm very excited to continue exploring him, you know, as I get older and wiser. <laughs> well, if you want a particular emotion, like that kind of complicated feeling of... Uh, having to make a decision, especially from a feminist perspective, this is where you would go to see these because that's all his movies. And I'd be curious to see, like, as he's, you know, wrestling with these scenes over and over again, the different angles that he finds on them. And that's very promising of like, ooh, I can't wait to watch more of his movies. I, I'll give him the best compliment I can, which is that his movies made me uh, think... I'm going to do William Friedkin's voice. He made me think deeply about the human condition. <laughs> <sighs> So, as per usual, you can send us letters at pointcentreclubpodcast at gmail.com. And if we don't read your letter, we're sorry. But we, we're actually getting to the point where we get a lot of letters. <laughs> Our next letter is from... Our first letter. Uh, Roman Tano. Where am I? Uh, <laughs> <sick will. laughs> 
Will prods me. I'm like, oh, I gotta keep going. Okay, okay. <laughs> dance, monkey, dance. Hey, y'all. Thank you all for making the only listenable film podcast in this format. Been listening for a couple of years, and I'm a Patreon subscriber. Anytime my card has five bucks on it. I've wow, got... I hear that. The only listenable film podcast. Hear those other guys? I've gotten the impression that Will and I share an interest in certain type of action film. Movies with a sort of tease, grit, tear you up, ugly intensity. Hey, now, what? You think I'm some kind of softy? As Will says, and I have to edit out almost every second week... Will's the nice one. I'm the mean one. You edit that out. <laughs> it's true, folks. All right. And yeah, the letter continues. Sometimes combined with a poetic sensibility or social conscience. I'm thinking of filmmakers like Peckinpah, Mann, Ringo Lamb, Aldrich, Carlson. My problem is that I'm having a hard time finding more films that scratch that itch. More films that can make me openly weep in the middle of a fight scene. While I love filmmakers like Fuller, Hawks, Wu, their essential joyousness keeps them from hitting the vibe I'm talking about. Except Shot Corridor, Criminal Code, and Bullet in the Head. More and more, I find myself chasing the dragon in ugly scenes in other genres surprised to find myself stewing so frequently in that Malden Lee scene streetcar do you all have recommendations of films or filmmakers that deliver this kind of thing so tough gritty action movies with a poetic eye here's the thing if you chase that dragon you're gonna hit a wall that nothing will please you to get that emotional feeling out of you you know what you gotta do Watch a little Naruse. <laughs> yeah, that's Deal right. with those complicated feelings in and, that way. And then recharge yourself, and then you can go back and back to it. Yeah. find something else, a more mature person. It's an interesting question. I don't know all, all that you've seen, but if I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, have you seen uh, Year of the Dragon by Michael Cimino? Mm -hmm. uh, I would also maybe suggest certain uh, Don Siegel movies, like Charlie Varick or uh, The Lineup. Uh, look into Japanese uh, cinema, especially like 70s Yakuza films, if you want that kind of like gritty meanness to these fight scenes, because there's also that kind of raw emotionality uh, in them as well, especially specifically the director that we're doing next week uh, and stuff like Kinju Fukusaku has a lot of movies in that vein. So I would recommend checking those out. Uh, Fear City by Abel Ferreira. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. That kind of rawness, angry, no joy in the action. Yeah. I uh, mean, Maniac Cop. Have you seen Maniac? Is that a bit of a stretch? Maniac Cop? Yeah, it sounds like he's looking for- It's very New York. Basically that Phil Carlson feel. That That's, sweaty uh, men slapping each buddy, other. Buddy, I'm, I'm looking for that Phil Carlson feel <laughs> all the time. Yeah. So uh, hopefully there were some filmmakers there that you never heard of before. Oh, uh, Walter Hill. Yeah, of course. He knows Walter okay, Hill. Okay, he knows Walter yeah, Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Go into Noirs. Like, especially, like, uh, stuff like Anthony Mann's films, because you'll find that kind of, like, manly, sweaty feel as well. Yeah, look at the uh, Columbia Noirs as well, mm -hmm. the stuff that the Columbia studio was producing. All right. So, our next letter is from... Jibril Mahmood, and he goes, Dear Justin and Will, is there a large tome of a book on the history of Indian micro-budget cinema you'd be able to recommend? Low-down, dirty pictures just covers the Marquis Sundance kids, but I want more, damn it! Okay, a book about micro-budget films. Um, yeah, so Down and Dirty Pictures, the example he cited was that very famous book by Peter Biskind about Sundance and about the rise of Harvey Weinstein's Miramax. Mm. Well, there's uh, no... Are you thinking about like mumblecore or yeah. that sort of thing? The problem is, is that there's not really any kind of canon for those types of films because if you're making micro budget pictures, you probably didn't really make that much afterwards. Well, also like micro budget is such a broad mm -hmm. term. Like it could it could mean Ed Wood, honestly. Mm -hmm. It could mean it could mean Maya Darren. I think he mean... means like late eighties, early nineties. What I would recommend, I don't have any in front of me right now, is look for journals of people that wrote making movies. Is that you get kind of 
that global idea of what making movies is and like trying to push forward and get those movies seen. Are you thinking of like Robert Rodriguez's book? Yeah, but that's not the one I would recommend because he's a Sundance kid. Like, but that's the issue, right? Is that we know these filmmakers because they succeeded, which is why we would be reading their stories. I would be curious. I mean, I guess nobody cares about the Mumblecore stuff. Uh, you know as much as they did in 2005 i would love a book about the history of mumblecore yeah it's like like joe swanberg and all that shit like i want to know yeah the cradle to i grave. should go shake uh, mark hansen because he loved that stuff so he could definitely write a book chronicling like how long did that last five years i mean it sort of turned into i mean you know adam wingard went and made different yeah and i think better kind of stuff <laughs> frankly godzilla versus king kong <laughs> well yes yeah i was thinking more like a horrible way to die know, that I sort know. of thing but um but also there was like the safety brothers and Frownland and um uncle kent well that's a joe swanberg that's a swanberg one, one. Yeah. but i was thinking like the, that safety brothers sensibility because they were in new york as opposed to chicago mm-hmm. and I, I i rather prefer the new york kind of thing but yeah i can't really think of like an oral history in that sense if somebody knows one write it in the comments of uh this uh post because i would love to read it because i love all that kind of stuff yeah there hasn't there hasn't been a canon though because because yeah uh mumblecore was has I been guess, completely forgotten basically well it, it was very brief yeah and i guess nobody wants to write the book and then <sighs> after that micro budget is too diffuse a thing I want like you know uh, I can't don't remember his last name. Who made Computer Chess? Uh, oh, Andrej. Bajalski. Yeah, yeah, and he made the other early Mumblecore films too. I want them like all running in parallel and want to read that story. I would love it. Oh, if you're interested in this sort of thing, maybe you would be interested in watching the documentary Blank City, which is an earlier era of micro budget movies. It's the no wave movies that were mm-hmm. being made in extreme poverty in like the late seventies and early 1980s in New York. Check out Blank City. I'm sure you can find it on Tubi or something. And I'm sure there's a book on no wave cinema, right? Probably, I feel like yeah. I read it. Uh... There's death tripping which is the book about the cinema of transgression. Mm-hmm. That's a good And that is definitely like the micro budget didn't go anywhere afterwards in the sense that like, that's the kind of like dead ends you want to read. Cause like the Joe Swanberg, where is he now directing television? That's what he's doing. And that's boring to read, right? Like this was a guy that in his prime was like, I want to start a personal Patreon where you pay me enough money to make five movies a year. Like that, I, I love that idea though. Yeah, yeah. And now he's like probably like sitting back in a mansion or something like that. That yeah, yeah. And, and he did that. He was a live streamer basically before he had, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And I he, remember. Except that. he stopped the stream after ninety minutes and released. Love it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Greta Gerwig uh, used to star in those movies. Now she's directing. Has left him in the dust. <laughs> yeah, the Barbie movie. All right. So uh, thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Enrico Sioni, and he goes, Dear Justin and Will, I've been enjoying your podcast for about two years now, so I thought I'd write to thank you for all the hours I spent listening to your breezy and insightful and informative conversations. And thank you for introducing me to Ed Wood, The Three Stooges, Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. (laughs) Wow, what things to be introduced to. Most recently, you've inspired me to rewatch some old Looney Tunes shorts. Well, I'm glad we, we're, we're continuing this trend. Very proud. I also have two questions in case you haven't been asked before. When you go to the cinema, where do you like to sit? About a year ago, I discovered that sitting in the middle of the front row in any of the screening rooms of my nearest cinema makes for fantastic, immersive experience, and without any of the neck ache I would have expected. One of the many films I've watched from that position is The Godfather Part Two, and at any moment, I feel like Al Pacino was going to unhinge his jaw and do- devour me whole. Where do you like to sit in the theater, Will? Depends very much on the theater, I would mm-hmm. say. It depends on the size of the screen, the size of the venue. Standard multiplex, like the Scotiabank here in Toronto, probably halfway up. 
Yeah, I think like we usually sit four rows up from the middle. Usually when I go with Emily, we sit off to the side because we don't want to be bothered by anyone. People would be like, oh, the important cinema club, important cinema club. I'm like, oh, no, 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 thank you. No, thank you. I, I mean, folks, you got to understand there are certain cinemas here in Toronto where we do get recognized. <laughs> I was being sarcastic in that sense, though. It, but... it's, it's true, though. It's true. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Justin's kidding because he doesn't uh, he doesn't want to be recognized. Uh, no. Um... I wear like Groucho glasses. <laughs> a mustache. Yeah, I'd be very inconspicuous. At the TIFF light box in Cinema 1 or 2, I like to sit pretty close. When was the last time you sat in Cinema 1 and 2? I was just there last weekend. Really? I saw Jean Dielman there. Oh, because the 1 and 2 is usually reserved for the new mongrel or E1 film. I know, they put the repertory stuff in shitty Cinema 4, mm-hmm. and because I guess they have deals with various... Yeah, they do have deals, that's why. Well, Jean Dielman, because it's pretty big now... <laughs> So popular that they put it in Cinema One. Uh, so I did see that there, and it was it was great. I mean, it was actually really nice. Where'd you sit? Uh, about halfway up. Normally, I would sit a little closer, mm-hmm. though. I don't really have that much of a um, like need or where oh, I usually sit here. Not the front row, though. Too close to the screen for me. Uh, I remember reading, I think it was in Nathan Rabin's book, how the first time he went to a Chicago press screening was like in like 1998 and he sat in a seat and Gene Siskel came up behind him and tapped him and said, young man, you're sitting in my seat. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I'd be like, is your, is your name on this? Yeah. <laughs> Get yeah. out of here, old man. Yeah. The, the last talented of the. <laughs> I've been seeing, seeing a lot of people who are like, I think I'm a more of a Gene Siskel man. And I got to say, he didn't really like movies. He kind of tumbled into that position. I would just say uh, Gene Siskel, uh, was wrong more times than Ebert was. Mm-hmm. Just think about that. <laughs> yes. On the other hand, uh, he was always ringside at those Chicago Bulls games. <laughs> loved it. Loved the loved the Bulls. Cared more about the Bulls than movies, and you got to respect that. The question is, who fucked more? <laughs> I think they both fucked a lot, but you yes. know. But Siskel hung out at the Playboy Mansion. He did. He was friends with half. He probably fucked more and better. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know. And then became a family man. Mm-hmm. So Cisco, uh, you know, hats off to him. When is the date that people will look at you and be like, what are you talking about when you bring up Roger Ebert and Gene Cisco? I see them on Twitter sometimes. Really? Because people... this is your brand. Like one day you'll be like, I say Roger Ebert says this. And the comments will be like, who is that? Because everybody who would comment and know has died and passed away. Well, it's a good point because Roger Ebert used to be pretty central to like film discourse. He like was... when did Roger Ebert get off television? Well, when he lost his job. Yeah, I know. But when did he like leave television? Like Probably like 2012-ish or okay, so, so, officially. It's, it's not that far. That's... But, but also, like, so he died in, like, 2013 or 14, and it used to be, like, he was the guy everyone checked. Yeah. Like, he was so central. And now, there are probably a lot of Zoomers and shit who don't even know. Because, like, at the top of his popularity, mid-90s? 30 years ago. <laughs> so that's a long time. But I do see I, I do see people posting Siskel and Ebert clips sometimes. Yes, they do. Because they're funny. Someone has a book on Siskel and Ebert coming out soon, I think. Really? I hope, yeah. I hope it's not sappy, like, oh, they loved the movies. I mean, Siskel <laughs> You want, you want like the tell-all, right? Yeah, and I also want some acknowledgement of the fact that Siskel and Ebert was like a funny show where like two guys, two two kind of medium smart guys yelled at each other. Mm-hmm. Like uh, us. Yeah, I was going to say, you beat me to it. Uh, one day uh, we'll get that book and it'll be published by Bear Manor Media. It'll be like the Gene Siskel biography. I'm sure there's already one if you went looking. Well, uh, thank you very much for the letter. There's also a question here in this letter about Soviet comedies. I don't think me and Will have much to say about that. I'm sorry. I really don't know a lot about Soviet comedies, but I would love to know more if you have any recommendations. Tell oh. me what the good ones are. Uh, they talk here about the Soviet Three Stooges. Oh, Whose names translate to coward, worldly, and fool. 
Well, we de- definitely yes. have to do more research into this. Yes, please. Uh, so thank you very much for the letter. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon uh, episode, we're talking about everyone is talking about this. Wade Williams. <laughs> okay, Wade Williams was a notorious and much hated film distributor and collector who passed away this week. He was the man who took Ed Wood's widow to court. He was the man who made a shot-for-shot remake of Detour. We watched that film. (laughs) We did. (laughs) And we discussed Wade Williams' enormous toxic legacy. That on the Patreon, plus years and years of content. Yeah, you can check that out. $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. We didn't even talk about this, Will, because it was a couple weeks ago. But we have some Golden Ninja Video Blu-rays coming out. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, White Zombie, the great yes. Bella Lugosi horror movie. And now this is something prompted by Will, because he met somebody who was selling a 60-millimeter print of White Zombie. Well, my friend Eric, I've had this 60-millimeter print of White Zombie that I saw him project years ago. Mm. And it's beautiful. It's uh, a very well-loved print that was saved from a library. It It has a sort of like... You know, it's not pristine. Saved by from the library in the sense that they were throwing it out and they pulled it out of the dumpster. It was saved from the dumpster. And it has this very uh, ghostly image, mm-hmm. this this strange otherworldly image that 16 millimeter film gives. And, it, we, and we wanted to preserve that. It, Will was like, can we do something? I'm like, all right, this is how we're going to sell it. We're going to sell it like movies don't look this way anymore. Yes. Because everything is pristine now. Everyone wants everything looking great. And I went, well, what if we just we just admitted, like, this is what the film looks like. like but, but it's beautiful because a 16 millimeter print that has seen life, mm-hmm. you know, don't you love, aren't you tired of seeing movies look completely airbrushed and, and, and all color corrected mm-hmm. to look fashionable for today? But that's the thing about color correction is oftentimes they're color corrected to look at the norms of today. That's right. Versus what they would have looked like originally. There are many ways to watch White Zombie. There uh, are there, thousands of ways. And, and this is one particularly beautiful way. And we should say that we thought the main selling point would be to you, the listener of the Important Cinema Club, because me and Will recorded intros where we're in costume, oh, we're yeah. doing shtick. So, this Blu-ray for White Zombie is loaded with extras. You can watch the movie or you can watch a version with horror host segments. Mm-hmm. Justin and I, dressed in costumes, doing dumb shtick, will guide you through the movie. There will also be an audio commentary. There will be interviews. You interviewed a 16mm film expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. So you can. Oh, take- and a whole bonus movie. Oh, oh yeah. N- newly scanned as well. Uh, Bella Lugosi's The Mystery of the Mary Celeste. Never been on Blu ray. And I think that the set is going to be two discs, too. <laughs> One of them, probably in a little paper case, because I do want like a, like a good version of Mary Celeste on there. I mean, a good version. It's scanned from a 60 millimeter print, but this film has never been available anywhere in high definition nowhere so it's it's gonna be great guys come on you can pick it up at goldninjavideo.com and we also have king of the bullwhip king of the bullwhip a great poverty row western starring lash larue Mm -hmm. who was the king of the bullwhip do you like cowboys do you like uh fist fights do you like tom neal star of detour (laughs) oh man you're gonna have fun with this it's uh, a really fun western by Ron Ormond, mm-hmm. the director of such classics as If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? So we're going to do a video feature on Ron Ormond where we just talk about his career. Absolutely. As well as commentaries, the whole shebang. Do you know that a bunch of those Ron Ormond films were remastered by Nicholas Winding Refn? That site does not exist anymore. 
It's gone. I know, but the transfers exist. They're out they there. They do. They're out there. But that's so frustrating that I feel like some of those movies are not up there. Mm-hmm. Like, they just, like, disappeared because people didn't bother to pick them up because they were just... Oh, available. I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did too. Yeah. yeah. Come on, NWR. What are you doing? Let's get in touch with uh, Nicholas Winding Raffin and make a deal. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll... Release them on Blu-ray? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, uh, just give them to us. You got these transfers? Why not? We'll do it. So you can pick up both those Blu-rays, White Zombie and King of the Bullwhip, at goldninjavideo.com now. All right, so next week, Japan Month continues. Yeah, we're doing a filmmaker that me and Will, again, are not that familiar with, Hideo Gosha. But I'm fascinated by him because he made very like powerful Yakuza films, worked for a long time, into the 80s, and his style kind of became kind of like big, bloated, almost prestige picture. But he started with like these mean, vicious films like The Wolves. So we'll be checking that out. We need someone like that, like a Kinju Fukusaku type. So. I'm very excited. I don't know him at all. So yeah, I want a new favorite director. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, my name's Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. just wanted to make a quick announcement that I will be hosting a new screening series online at twitch.tv slash important cinema club every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern I will be showing a film usually related to next week's topic it's a chance for all of us listeners to get together chat about movies and you know get a little bit of a taste of the thing that we'll be talking about on the upcoming episode. I hope everybody can join us. It's open to everybody, whether you're a Patreon subscriber or not. But if you are a mega member of the Important Cinema Club Patreon, you can vote every week from a bunch of choices of what movie we'll watch. Again, this is happening every Monday at 8 p.m. EST. It'll be hosted by me every week. Maybe there'll be prizes that are given away. There'll be a cartoon, a movie, maybe even a little bit more. I hope that I'll see you there. And for more information, just check out the Important Cinema Club on Twitter or just follow me at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, letter J. Hope I'll see you at the Important Cinema Club, Cinematech. I would also like to thank new Patreon members John Hayes, Ben Hartman, Axel Steele, Philip Jeffries, Eric Wicklin, Kenneth Bigley, Kenneth Hunt, Ian Bennett, Alex, Matt H., and Amara Maka. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. We wanted to laugh after we watched this week's Patreon uh, subject, Wade Williams' detour. So we, you know, logically picked the best thing. Well, I was telling Justin that Curly Joe Dorita made a series of short films at Columbia in the 1940s. Now, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, you may be wondering, who's Curly Joe Dorita? Just a quick refresher. <laughs> okay. Because as Stan Lee said, every comic could be somebody's first comic. Mm-hmm. Curly Joe Dorita was the last stooge. When the Three Stooges became popular again in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Moe and Larry said, well, Shemp's dead, Curly's dead. We need a new Curly. So they got Joe Dorita, who was a uh, heavyset vaudevillian, uh, a journeyman who'd been around for a long time. They shaved his head and they called him Curly Joe, and he was not funny. But Joe Dorita had made some shorts for Columbia with the Three Stooges team. Yeah, he was on the lot at the same time as the Stooges were. The Stooges made films at Columbia from 1934 to 1958. They were there forever. Curly Joe had, you know, six months in the mid-40s. So, I mean, I've seen these films before because I'm a Curly Joe super fan. And when I found out that Justin had never seen a Curly Joe short film, I said, what? (laughs) What? 
how have you never seen a Curly Joe film? So there's one called Wedlock Deadlock. There's one called Jitterbug House. There's one called The Good Bad Egg. The one we watched is called Slappily Married. Now, I got to say, I laughed a lot watching the shorts. Yes. Because imagine a Three Stooges short that only starred Larry. Because Curly Joe has hair in this. That bald look that he had as Curly Joe to Rita... That's something he shaved his head to get that look. So he has long, stringy hair. As Emo you, Phillips style hair. Right. And uh, you say Larry as well because Curly Joe is the tofu stooge. Yeah. You know, uh, he doesn't have a lot of personality. So imagine it was a Three Stooges short, but it was just one guy getting hurt. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah. I, I thought it was funny. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I I think it's he's way funny. I mean, he's not funny, really, mm-hmm. but, but the short... <laughs> well, he's what? What's who's the director on the short? It's, uh, uh, it's uh, Edward Burns, who was one of the Three Stooges' most prolific directors. He later directed uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor in Queen of Outer Space and Return of the Fly. And so, like this uh, short open was Curly Joe going, "Oh, it's Friday the Thirteenth. It's unlucky today," and then just proceeds to him just destroying a kitchen. So yeah, there's a very clean three act structure here. He's trying to cook in the kitchen. He's trying to make eggs or a cake or something. And he keeps shit keeps falling on him. Just and... like, the way that it's structured, though, there's like a cartooniness to the Three Stooges because they're always bouncing off of each other. When it's Curly Joe by himself, it's just a man being like, oh, <laughs> he gets like in the head by play. Mo and Curly are such strong comic personalities. They're such strong like caricatures. Curly Joe is just a guy. Yeah. He, he's... So it's like seeing a guy tortured by his house. Yes, yes. And the fact that there are no other guys to play off is mm-hmm. so funny. So there's that. Then there's the middle section where he apparently owns a shoe store. Yeah. Fair enough. Fine. He yep, owns a shoe store. Fine. I got to go to work at my shoe store. But the short really comes to life in the third part. Oh, God. So he has to go see his wife at this... Uh, ha- a hotel for women. A hotel for women. So you can imagine what happens. He's in drag, uh-huh. you know. But the highlight of the short is Curly <laughs> Joe pretending to be a table that then gets ironed by a woman. Yeah. And it just cuts to Curly Joe stringy long black hair covered in sweat. We're like looking up at his face, just trying not to scream. Being like, I mean, just, just the, the idea of him hiding as an ironing board. <laughs> yes. He's got clothes on top of him body outstretched and that she's ironing his back and the camera is closed in on his face from underneath his stringy hair hanging yeah sweat dripping from his bow it's funny and the fact that's curly joe too who like you know he's not a strong character he's just a guy and well, he's being tortured. The thing about Curly Joe is that he would always say in interviews, like, he didn't get the Three Stooges style of humor. And he never got to show his own humor. What is that? Like, these shorts do not tell you that. I, I don't know if he would understand any kind of humor. Mm-hmm. The man wasn't funny. So after Cur- that Curly Joe, sorry, Joe Dorita short, we're like, all right, we need more laughs. Let's watch some Shemp solo shorts. <laughs> yeah, so we watched one called Bride and Gloom, which was <laughs> hilarious. Here's the thing. Shemp rocks. I love Shemp. There's no irony to us saying that Shemp is funny. <laughs> yeah. Do you like Shemp a little more than Curly even? <sighs> we talked about this. As a kid, you love Curly. That I think Curly is the entryway to Three Stooges as a child. Because you understand this large childlike man being like, boop, 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 like doing all this big physical acts. Shemp is the blue collar stooge. <laughs> the thinking man stooge. Right. Is that like, man, that mug just doing those like double takes. I mean, it's a, it, it's a, a, a 
Well, I don't want to body shame Shemp. Mm. His face is remarkable, though. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, brought to life by Drew Friedman, basically. Like, he exists only for that. I mean, we might not have Drew Friedman as yeah. an artist if Shemp's face didn't exist. One of the big jokes in the Shemp short is that his wife looking at a photo and going, He's so beautiful. How can I say no to that? That's the joke. He looks at himself in the mirror in the short and goes, Oh. Speaking of these particular stooges, I do want to tell you that I went on eBay and uh, bought. Probably the prized possession in my home right now. If you go on eBay, I think you could still find one of these. Uh, uh, an actual piece of one of Curly Joe Dorita's short pants. Okay, so you bought this for yourself. Yeah. I thought that like your girlfriend bought it for you no. as a present. No, I bought it for me as a present. <laughs> it's an actual authentic piece of short pant material. How is it authentic? Well, probably like he's shitting it. Like, like... <laughs> I think I think uh, it's Curly Joe's. I think grandkids or something, oh or or, or his 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 nephew or his. I think his widow used to run the Three Stooges company. Okay, yeah. So as we've talked about before, that a lawyer decided that Curly Joe's family owned the rights to the Stooges. Not just any lawyer, Bella Lugosi Jr. Yeah, he represented the Doritas. Yeah. So are you? That's gonna, a whole other story. Are you going to have a hallway in your home dedicated to Curly? Joe Dorita. Yeah, because I do have a, a piece of his stationery as well. I, I want to get more and more of his short pants material and stitch it together and be, I'd be like... <laughs> like a Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, like Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Wait, so I can just imagine walking into Will's home and there's like a hallway and it's like the short pants, his stationery, like a full poster of like the short that and we then, watched. And then his, his corpse <laughs> mummified like Norman Bates' mother. It's like, hi, Justin, you want to meet Curly Joe? <laughs> And I'm like, wow, he's way more lifelike than he was on screen. 